It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Allison Williams joins us. She's a senior banks analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And Bloomberg Opinion columnist Paul Davies uh, also joining us here for a little roundtable here. Paul... What's the feeling here about bringing back uh, Mr. Emoti to UBS? It, I guess the market likes it. It's kind of seen as a good thing. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's seen as definitely a good thing. I mean, you know, UBS now presents a very different leadership challenge than it did, you know, three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, it was still you know, a very well-run, self-contained wealth manager with some good sort of growth prospects, you know, churning out good profits and buying back stock. And lots of people quite liked it. Then it was, you know, sort of shoehorned into this incredibly large and complicated takeover deal to sort of rescue its longtime, you know, crosstown rival uh, Credit Suisse. And there is a very difficult, you know, cultural and financial integration to do. And there's also Swiss taxpayer money, you know, on the line here if things don't go well. So I think for shareholders, for the Swiss government, for the Swiss people who don't necessarily like this deal either, you know, they need somebody with the experience and the background of Sergio Amotti and someone who has his kind of, you know, statesman-like presence as well. And they need someone who has his uh, kind of citizenship as well. It's kind of a dirty little secret that nobody likes to talk about this, but... I remember when Joseph Ackermanns, who is Swiss, was put in charge of Deutsche Bank, which is German. And guess what? (laughs) That did not go down well with the Germans. I know, I know. I'm not saying that they're xenophobic, but the Swiss do not like when foreigners come in and run their big institutions. Um, That's an issue with a lot of countries. Right. Um, Paul, how much of this is about Ermody not being Dutch Ralph Hammers? I mean... uh, 80% 80% of the people in that country in a, in a recent poll were against this forced takeover. Is this a little bit of a throwing them a bone? You know, here's a Swiss guy. Don't worry. The, the old dude that you know and love is coming back and he's from our own country. So how much is that? How much of that is playing into this? I mean, I think, you know, the Swissness sort of helps in the sense of, you know, you've got to win the trust of the people of Switzerland and, like I say, the, the politicians and regulators whose own careers and reputations are on the line as well after this after this kind of shotgun marriage. So, I mean, it definitely helps. And there is, you know, everybody kind of, you know, says there's this unwritten rule that at least one of the two top, job, top jobs, sorry, chairman or CEO needs to be held by a Swiss person. Right. You know, it hasn't always been true. Um, and I don't think Switzerland is, you know, quite as... Um, you know, blinkered in that way as 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 you might as some people might think 
But I mean, it's it is a conservative country, and right now they need a leader who can sell this deal to the Swiss people. Exactly. So, Allison, from your perspective as a research analyst looking at the fundamentals, the financials here, what are Mr. Amodi's kind of top two or three tasks? Do you believe to ensure that this is a success? Wow, top two or three. So, um, so first, you know, they they have to right size the units in terms of. Um, you know, deciding what they're what they're going to keep and what they're going to leave behind. I think, you know, in particular, um, he'll he'll guide strategy at the investment bank, but hopefully there are um, people with expertise evaluating those assets and client risks, and you know, making sure that there's no doubling down on risks they don't want. Um, you know, I think that the the second so so first is sort of making those decisions, which. We've seen broad strokes, but I think Armani has to sort of confirm those and, and implement that. Um, second, I would say is uh, culture, and so so maybe this is actually the first, this is even more important than picking the businesses, right? So think about the culture of UBS in terms of, uh, especially under the range of Armani, pulling back of risk and really strong controls of the business. One, one of the charts we like to show is, you know, if you look at overall trading and revenue for the global trading and investment banking business, uh, you know, UBS is at the lower end of variability on that scale, and Credit Suisse is, is at the high end. And so taking on those businesses and instilling culture, I think, um, is probably the most important task and uh, the most difficult tasks. And then, you know, finally, um, the restructuring cost-cutting program is going to be significant. Um, managing the risk, especially within the combined Swiss unit, where they have a significant share, a share that I think would have prevented yep. a deal if, if not for the, the troubles that the government was trying to avoid. Um, you know, that's a key challenge. And so Armadi obviously brings the, the Swiss expertise, as you said. He's also undergone a significant de-risking and restructuring program under Before, his reign right. in prior years. Hey, Paul, you know, I've seen reporting that the this deal, this combination is extremely unpopular with the Swiss people. Why is that? I mean, I think there's there's a couple of things. I mean, there was some of the some of the surveys that I saw were about the credibility of uh, the 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 regulator Finma and the government. Do they have um, credibility? Well, I so didn't they, know that. Well, <laughs> they overseeing Credit Suisse, which has like a global scandal every six months. I mean, there are plenty of people who thinks that uh, who think that uh, Finma, uh, the the financial regulator, could have and and should have, you know, intervened in in stronger ways. You know, much sooner. I think there's, you know, the, you could even find people at Credit Suisse who who would have hoped that the regulator might have rescued them from themselves much quicker. Um, but uh, but then the other, I mean, the other key thing about the unpopularity of this deal is just, you know, the dominant bank at home that it will create. And again, that's a kind of, I think, that's another reason why the presentation of this and uh, and the effort that you know Sergio Amati will have to make to to win over people and win over win back trust. Is, is going to be so important. You know, they waived competition rules to let this deal happen. Colm Kelleher, the chairman, you know, when they were announcing this deal the other week, said, you know, we were going to do everything we can to kind of hold on to this enlarged Swiss bank. You know, we've not heard the last of this at all. Uh, so I think, you know, there's a real, you know, public 
public relations, charm offensive, whatever you want to call it, effort to be made to try and keep this together you know, on the part of UBS? I mean, they had to do something, right? right. Credit Suisse had, they were spying on their employees. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. um, they had uh, bet big on green sill. Yep. They were willing to give as much credit to Archegos as he wanted. Exactly. You know, I mean, but the reality is, I mean, this has been going on for uh, now actually they're getting for tax issues. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, is there anything oh. they didn't do wrong? <laughs> what would the Swiss people have preferred? You know, I mean, I don't know, Allison. What just from the investment banking perspective, do you put one and one together and, and get two plus? How do you think they're going to play the investment banking business? So, unfortunately, we think it's actually the opposite. You put one and one together, and the, the combined entity is probably going to come in uh, below, Oof. you know, sort of what would be pro forma estimates, at least for the near term, for, for two key reasons. One is, um, you know, as I mentioned, they're going to want to mitigate combined risk to clients in terms of um, exposures to clients and, and what they're providing them. They're not going to double down. From the client side, they're also not going to want to double down as well. Clients like to, um, you know, sort of diversify the people that they're working with and their exposures. Um, and then secondly, you know, when you look at, um, you know, in particular the fixed income trading business of Credit Suisse, a lot of this um, are types of businesses that UBS has shied away from and, and moved away from a long time ago. UBS's fixed income trading unit is very currencies, rates-focused, um, so really focused on flow-based businesses, if you will, that don't use the balance sheet as much. Yep. Um, Credit Suisse was the opposite. Uh, we know that they've already been moving away and reducing that, and we think that, uh, uh, well, UBS has said they're going to do it, yep. and uh, we expect that that happens on an accelerated time frame that they cut those assets more. All right, guys, great having you both together on this. Uh, it's a big, big day for UBS as it tries to navigate its acquisition uh, of Credit Suisse, really uh, over, it's going to be a multi-year issue is kind of how it appears at this point. We had Paul Davies, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us from London, and Allison Williams, Senior Global Banks Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us from the phone from uh, Princeton, New Jersey, kind of rounding it all out. Yeah, I just think it's... Uh uh, not the end. We're going to hear more yes, I think on this you're story. Exactly, exactly right. There's probably uh, a lot of uh, issues that UBS is going to find over the coming weeks, months, and maybe years. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. David Bonson, CIO of the Bonson Group. Before that, he spent a bunch of time at Morgan Stanley and then at UBS uh, uh, running money here. So, Under Sergio Armati. 
Exactly. Uh, now, uh, interesting, Mr. Armandi's back. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, what are you telling your clients these days? You know, it just January was great. Fe February, not so much. March, just kind of hanging out here. And now we start quarter two. What are you telling your clients? Well, essentially, I'm telling them exactly what markets are telling us, which is that there's a lot of uncertainty in the equity market and that that volatility is likely to continue. I'm struck by Bullard's comment about the um, equity volatility uh, can mean certain things at different times for financial conditions, and it's just not really their job to look at it because I very much agree with them. It is not their job to look at that. Uh, financial conditions are going to move for any number of different reasons, and their job is to not be taking their signals that way. Rather, um, it is quite evident that the disinflation is upon us and that they have over-tightened and uh, they seem hell-bent on uh, exacerbating the mistakes they make on both ends, uh, staying too low too long and then staying too tight too long. Well, don't they? I mean, it seems what they really want to do is avoid the fate of Arthur Burns. They, they don't want to, um, uh, you know, shoot before they see the whites of the eyes of, I guess, uh, disinflation, right? Well, I would love to believe that they cared about that. I don't. I definitely understand rhetorically that Powell has talked much more that way, more Volcker-like than Burns-like. But uh, Arthur Burns never had the luxury of dealing with M2 dropping 3% in one quarter. And uh, the CPI lag essentially representing over half, uh, the shelter lag rather, in CPI, representing over half of what we see in CPI. Um, Burns was not coming off of a shutdown of the economy that then led to a supply side, really a debacle in the production of goods and services, labor shortages, other things like that. And so there were a lot of differences in the inflation of the 70s and the inflation we've had of the last 18 months. But but what, do you, way, what do you think then, David? Uh, it's been suggested to us by, I think, Daniel Martino Booth that part of what Powell wants to do is just break the Fed put for now and forever. What, what do you think his end game is? Yeah, and, and I, I love Danielle, and I think that Danielle's assessment of what Powell did back in 18 and 19 was some of the best out there, but I don't agree with her uh, that that is the case. I don't think any Fed chair can break the Fed put. I think that it is not merely a matter that Wall Street or Main Street has gotten dependent on it, both of which is true, but um, the U.S. economy has gotten dependent on it. The pension funds, uh, the unfunded liabilities of pensioners all around the country um, to totally break the put if we really thought that was happening. Credit spreads would be 500 basis points wider than they are. Uh, we had a year last year where everyone was talking about recession, and yet duration underperformed credit. I mean, it was it's surreal that we're having a banking moment right now, and there isn't a single lick of credit impairment. It's entirely interest rate risk. So I don't think that the Fed put is going anywhere. But again, even if Daniel's right, we wouldn't know it until they really get tested. I mean, the S&P is down 20. Uh, the Nasdaq was in, uh, from last year. The Nasdaq had already gone up 50 before it came down 30. Credit spreads are still really, really tame. Nothing has broken yet. Now we have the banking system. Uh, you know, I certainly think the Fed can control housing price inflation with the interest rate, and, and that bubble is out of control. So that's one element where I believe they can control inflation. I just don't believe they have any control with the Fed funds rate over mm. normal goods and services. 
All right, Dave, let's get to brass tax here. Uh, where do we go with our money? A lot of folks are telling me to go to quality. I'm not really sure what that means, but it feels like I should be buying companies that sell toothpaste and they mean cash shampoo flow, right? and and have high dividends. I mean, is how are you thinking about quality in today's market? What does that mean to you? Yeah, so I can only assume that you're teeing me up accidentally. I certainly am talking my book here, but uh, the difference is I'm not making a tactical call for quality. It's all we do. It's all we ever believe in. We never want to be buying uh, high-priced, high-multiple. What do you mean, David, when you say quality? We mean balance sheet strength and free cash flow. And that's all anyone should mean. I mean, I would add to that, although I think it's sort of implied, a business model that is sensible and defensible and so forth. But out of that business model that is not quite so cyclical and not quite so speculative, quality is a financial condition. It refers to balance sheet strength, lower debt ratios, and more predictable and growing free cash flow. And how do we know if a company has dependable dividend growth? It's from the free cash flow growth. You can't pay a dividend for money that doesn't exist. And so as dividend growth managers, uh, a little over $2.5 of the over $4 billion that I manage is in dividend growth equity, and it is doing extremely well right now, uh, and we believe it's the right place to be going forward. But again, we believe that even when FANG is rallying. But hey, while you're talking your book, you want to give us some names? <laughs> yeah, by the way, I think a name like Blackstone and Apollo, which are a couple asset managers, they get lumped in with financials, and we know the banks have had a hard time. But these are just unbelievable dividend growers that simply don't have a bank business model at all. They don't take balance sheet risk. They're using investor money from which they get really good fees, really good promotes. And they're mostly in non-traditional asset classes, private equity, hedge funds, real estate, credit. Um, and they're asset-gathering machines. And so Blackstone and Apollo are two robust dividend-growing names. Blackstone we've owned for a decade and uh, believe that they will continue growing the dividend in high single digits per year. You're going to get about a 5% dividend annualized, and you're going to get, we think, that much or more in price growth. How about energy? Um, I'm thinking, David, I might have missed that whole train there, that whole boat. What happened with energy? Is there anything left there? Yeah, there certainly is, although we are a little bit more bullish now on midstream than upstream. But, you know, when you say miss the boat, if you mean the uh, 45% move and yeah, that might be it. <laughs> and the, the 60% move last year. But you know what? Um, it's trading at 9.2 times earnings. Okay. It's trading at half of its annualized uh, valuation. Meanwhile, tech, which was pummeled last year, is still trading at 24 times versus an 18 times historical. So I, I would still argue that energy is undervalued relative and tech is overvalued relative. But uh, a better place to be from a quality standpoint is midstream really robust free cash flow growth, heavy dividend coverage, and they really delevered. What they is midstream? Is, uh, is that refineries? Um, no, refineries would be more downstream, and re midstream would be the pipelines and ah. storage, transportation. It's a very environmentally friendly play as well. You don't want oil and gas being transported by truck and by rail. And so we like the pipeline space. And then, of course, the LNG export story yep. is a midstream story, too. And we think there's huge growth potential there. If I, if I wanted to build a new pipeline today, I couldn't get it done, could Not I? Not in this administration. Why did we all hate that uh, big pipeline coming down from Canada? I don't know. Some of the elk migration yeah. or something. So, but it, I mean, it, I mean, that's also kind of a bullish part of the the midstream call. They're not going to be adding more pipelines. 
Yeah, I do hope that that will change. I believe it is, uh, uh, without getting overly political, an incredibly foolish decision by the current administration. But the fact of the matter is, you're right. It boosts up the value of incumbent assets when you artificially constrain new supply. All right. We'll have to see how that plays out. David Bonson, always a pleasure to chat with, get some good ideas. David Bonson, CIO of the Bonson Group. He's been managing private wealth money for a long time. He's got a lot of perspective. He's out there in the West Coast, too, which we like out there in Newport Beach, California. God, that's got to be tough going into the office every day. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa, from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The news coming out of China, I guess most recently, was company-specific. Alibaba, one of the leading conglomerate telecom, uh, cloud companies, e-commerce companies, one of the real success stories of China, um, is going to be breaking itself up into six smaller pieces. And I don't want to necessarily talk about that per se, but what does it mean for the economy, for the tech sector, for just the government's involvement uh, in the uh, economy of China? And to do that, we check in with Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist Tom Orlick. Tom, you lived and worked in China, in Beijing for many, many years. You've got a fantastic perspective here. You see the Alibaba news, and I'm a, is this entirely in response or primarily in response to the government saying, you guys got too big and we want to see you get smaller? So I think what Alibaba has done here, uh, Paul, is potentially rather ingenious. Um, they've got a plan which could satisfy their two key constituencies. On the one hand, you've got investors who are frustrated that they see Alibaba, um, the big company, not being valued as it should be um, and see potential for much higher valuations if some of the fast-growing components of the business from e-commerce to cloud to logistics um, can be split off. And on the other hand, you've got Beijing. Xi Jinping, um, who are worried about the power of tech monopolies, worried perhaps that very powerful entrepreneurs could one day pose a challenge to Communist Party rule. Um, And so this plan to split the company up into six different um, smaller companies um, potentially satisfies both groups. All right. So you hit on something there that I was wondering about since these Alibaba headlines came out, really since the uh, photos of Jack Ma surfaced reportedly back in uh, in China. How much does Alibaba really get to decide for itself? I mean, when we say Alibaba made a genius decision, isn't it? Aren't they just kind of told what to do? You know, I mean, that is a really good question, um, and I do not have a crystal ball into the Alibaba boardroom. Um, certainly. China's common prosperity agenda, which has included a sweeping crackdown on the big tech companies, Alibaba, Tencent, Meituan, and others, will have exerted a bunch of pressure on company leadership. Um, At the same time, are the regulators kind of in the weeds of this, kind of calling the shots on what happens? Um, I don't know the answer to that, Um, but my suspicion is that China's government aren't that silly. They know what they want. They want to clamp down on monopolistic power, but they also know the limits of their own understanding. And they know that at its heart, Alibaba is a 
very competitive, very dynamic, potentially world-beating company, and they don't want to stop that. They don't want to. They don't want to kill it. But, so I suspect uh, the direction comes from the government, but the decisions come from the corporate board. Let, let me ask you a question that um, I started thinking about when. Uh, I guess 15 years ago when Yukos got um, fined like 20 billion from Russia and then, um, you know, their their boss ended up in a Siberian gulag. Uh, China, I wonder the same thing about do they um, do they risk driving away international investors uh, who are scared about the lack of a, you know, real justice system, uh, the lack of the rule of law, when they start disappearing leaders and investment bankers, do they do they care about that? Um, so, I mean, firstly, um, whilst there are obviously some commonalities between Russia um, and China, um, I think that what happened to the Russian entrepreneurs um, following Putin assuming power um, and what's happened to Chinese entrepreneurs over the last couple of years uh, are really two different things, right? Um, China's entrepreneurs have been hit with fines. Russia's entrepreneurs, well, if they'd just been hit with fines, um, they'd be doing a lot better than they are actually doing. Um, <clears throat> Now, um, but Jack Ma disappeared for a couple of years, right? Uh, there was an investment banker about a month ago who hasn't been heard from since. They throw reporters uh, in some place that they don't tell us about, and we don't hear from them. I mean, these people just get taken off the streets and they're gone. Yeah, and I think to your point, um, this is clearly something which is very concerning for international investors. Um, so markets have cheered this plan for an Alibaba restructuring. There's been, I think, a 16% pop in the Alibaba share price in the last day. Um, but if you look at what's happened to Alibaba's share price and the share price of Tencent and the other big tech companies over the last two or three years, it's fallen a lot, yep. right? It's fallen a lot. Um, and a big reason for that is precisely because investors are now worried, well, am I investing in a company which can make its own decisions or am I investing in a company which is always going to be at the mercy of the kind of capricious policy choices right. uh, of the Communist Party? Tom, um, I, you're, you're, you're the chief economist at Bloomberg Economics, um, so this is a completely unfair question. Do we have any idea where Jack Ma is, what he's doing? Because as Matt was saying, he hasn't been seen really for a couple of years. Um, you know, that is a completely unfair question. Yes. Uh, so, um, so I'm not going to speculate on it. Um, but I, I will tell you that, um, that entrepreneurs in China um, have a more difficult job in general than entrepreneurs in the West. Um, and entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs in China for the last couple of years have had an even more um, difficult job than normal. Um, so if they're keeping a low profile and messaging alignments with Communist Party priorities, that's really not a huge surprise. All right, Tom. I, I, I will, I'll, I'll apologize for both of us, for, <laughs> yes. Tom, for putting you in an uncomfortable <laughs> position on a number of – you're one of the smartest economists out there, and we're so uh, happy to have you yep. with us um, that we don't want to – <laughs> you don't want to get you fired for saying the wrong thing. Throw you under the bus. All right, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Tom Orlick, he's the chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. 
Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's going to help us guide us through the next segment or two, and we'll get we'll let him get. Dude, all I got so many in. questions that I got to ask Barry. I know, but let's get to our next guest. Let's get to Annika Trion, chief economist, international for Van Longshot Kempen. Annika, we've got a U.S. Federal Reserve here that most market participants here feel like. All right, maybe one more 25 basis point rate increase, and maybe that's kind of going to be it. But boy, uh, Christine Lagarde a couple of weeks ago was pretty adamant that along with that 50 basis point increase, there's likely more to come. What's the feeling in Europe about how the European Central Bank and, and the Bank of England, for that matter, is going to proceed over the next several months and quarters? Hi, good morning. Um, well, there's certainly a difference, and I think it's classic Europe being uh, a lagger versus the U.S., and we see it again. So obviously, you know, all central banks started off with this transitory dialogue. The U.S. was the first to kind of realize, well, let's move away from that and let's actually start taking action. And the ECB followed suit, but took longer and acted later. And therefore, it's no surprise that they have to be persistently more hawkish than the Fed in order to... Um, solve the inflationary problem. So what does that mean, Europe, Annika? Uh, I mean, first of all, um, everyone's been watching the euro gain strength against the dollar, right? Uh, is that is that part of this? I think so, absolutely. And I mean, let's just be very tangible. You know, the market is talking about the 25 basis points for the Fed and the 50 basis points for the, for the ECB. And it's simply this mechanism uh, working through. Sorry, we got to, Barry has a question, but we get to have his mic turned on. There we go. There we go. <laughs> hey, Barry. Annika. Uh, so here in the States, it, it looks like goods-based inflation peaked sometime last year around June, but we still have very persistent services-based inflation, primarily wages, where there's a shortage of workers, and apartment rentals, where there's just not enough housing. How does that goods versus services dynamic look in Europe? Yeah, so we're seeing exactly the same phenomena, and it's also visible in the PMIs, right? If you look at the PMIs uh, services, it's still it's still very strong, whereas PMIs in manufacturing are obviously getting much, much weaker. And in Europe, it's exactly the same as what you see in the U.S., and obviously it's no surprise that the reopening is still playing its uh, hand in the fact that the services uh, side is strong. And like the U.S., the labor market is extremely strong, extremely tight, and don't forget what we have more in Europe than you have in the U.S. with these labor unions, which also tend to increase the stickiness around uh, wage inflation. Annika, we know in, in Europe there's so many of those big European industrial companies that do a lot of business with China. Uh, give us a sense of how the China reopening is, is factoring into your economic outlook. Yeah, so, I mean, we're all very excited about, you know, one of the world's largest demand drivers finally being able to participate into the economy and actually, you know, help global growth. I think the issue is obviously, like we saw in the other reopening stories, it tends to be more services driven. It tends to be, it's probably likely to be more domestic driven, at least in the beginning. And obviously all sorts of protectionist political policies going on over there means it's less straightforward than, hey, China is back in the game. So I don't think, on one hand, it's, on one hand we were all sort of excited about, hey, the reopening in China is finally happening and actually faster than we expected. On the other hand, um, there are these factors to, to sort of work through. So it's not that straightforward. Right. We, we look at the past three decades. Clearly, China was an exporter of deflation. Now, after spending all this time locked down, uh, how big of an inflation exporter might they be over the next year? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what you're seeing in general, and it's a little bit more fundamental in terms of a re, a re well, it's two parts. I think one is more fundamental, fundamental and longer term, which is like a rewiring of global supply chains. And obviously, you know, a lot of companies in Europe, everybody talks about Europe, but actually are these European companies or are they just companies that happen to be listed in Europe? And a lot of the industrial ones are in that camp, right? And that's why people sometimes look at European equities, especially now versus the U.S. and say, wow, what an opportunity to buy these great industrial businesses cheap because they happen to be listed in Europe. There's that part of it. But I think what you're seeing is a lot of um, international industrial companies listed in Europe are forced to kind of reshore, uh, look for alternative supply um, sources outside of China, for example, which is actually naturally quite inflationary because um, obviously they were enjoying a much lower cost by uh, using China as a key part in the supply chain. All right, I want to get to the banks conversation. So I'm just going to, yep. I, don't, I don't have any kind of, we're just going to go straight there. Um, because Annika, yep. I noticed uh, you've been watching, I think you've been watching the um, uh, hearings. What does this bailout of SVB and Signature Bank depositors, and that's really what it is, right? A depositor bailout. What yep. does that mean for, yep. um, you know, moral hazard? Yeah, it's a major one, right? So I think there's two points that we have to talk about here. I think one point is the fact that it's schizophrenic behavior. So on one hand, central banks say, okay, guys, stop talking about the Fed puts. Stop saying, you know, we're always going to put a, put a floor under everything. We're going to tackle inflation. Don't count on us anymore. We're restricting money supply, blah, blah, blah. However, if a bank fails, um, suddenly our hands appear again and we're putting a floor under the marketplace. And that's exactly what guaranteeing all deposits is signaling to the market. So it's a bit schizophrenic and a bit confusing. The moral hazard point is, again, a bit more of a philosophical conversation, which is what is the role that banks play in society? We obviously know that it's crucial because that's how the whole credit cycle works, et cetera, amplification, economic growth, et cetera. And is the role of a bank more of a utility, in which case, it is a kind of moral hazard situation, but it should be run differently, knowing that uh, governments are always there to bail out the yeah. I mean, this is what or, this is the point I'm getting yeah. to. Yeah, because P Paul is normally the most conservative guy in the room, <laughs> and ever since he realized that the uh, the Fed, the FDIC, and the U.S. government are there to bail us out no matter what happens, he's wanted to take on more risk. risk. <laughs> so, so let me so push back that, a little exactly bit. It. I'm going to push back a little bit, and I'm literally talking my book, which. It, Bailout Nation came out in 09. But Barry wrote a book think, called Bailout Nation. I think we really need to make a distinction between rescuing people from the folly of their own behavior and making them whole, like all of the Wall Street banks that bought subprime junk, uh, and depositors that have half a million in cash, a small business operating that's using a local bank. I don't think there's anything reckless uh, or... or uh, requiring a bailout when someone says, oh, I'm going to go to this top 20 bank and run my business out of it. The alternative is we're only going to put our money in the four largest banks. And so there's a difference between rescuing equity holders who were made whole um, or bondholders who really were made whole and people who are just collateral damages like depositors to say nothing of trying to arrest the contagion and allowing it to spiral out of control. All right, Annika, let's go cl closer to home for you. Credit Suisse, UBS, how important is that for 
European economies. Uh, you know, we, we sense it over here in the States, but I'm guessing it's just much more profound for not only just the Swiss, but European investors in general. Well, I think that, you know, Credit Suisse is old news. So, you know, we've read for months and months and months around all the issues of Credit Suisse, and that's why I don't think it was as much of a blow to sort of domestic European readers as it might be um, across the continent, simply because we're so used to the issues over there. So I think that's not such a big thing. I think the bigger thing is that, and I think that's also the point that you were making earlier, it's very complex. Now, I'm talking, you can talk about depositors and you can talk about investors and market participants. But let's talk about real people because it's all about fear and real people and they influence the markets, obviously. The point is, as a depositor, how on earth are you supposed to gauge whether depositing your money at a certain bank, also a household name bank, by the way, is safe based on the balance sheet situation of the bank? If even Credit Suisse, which was so well understood and anticipated, ended up surprising by, you know, having gone through what it went through. What I'm trying to say is, if you analyze a lot of the banks, and I mean, if you're just a regular depositor and you see, even if you're a large one, even if you're a corporate that's depositing serious sums of capital, if you just read the balance sheet at face yep. value, you might think, oh, that's totally fine. And then you've got unrealized losses, etc. And it's just the accidents, sort of victims right. of the accidents from raising rates too fast. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, it's a very difficult issue that uh, most investors are trying to get their handles around, handle around, and we got regulators in Washington, D.C. trying to do the same. Annika Trion, uh, Chief Economist International at Van Lonshot Kepin, uh, joining us. We appreciate her time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Matt Miller and me in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Barry Ritholtz, head of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's got a podcast out there. He writes books. He does all that stuff. But we grabbed him for a few minutes, and he's going to stick around with us. We want to talk fixed income. And when you want to talk fixed income, you need to go to some serious people. And that includes good folks at TCW. Uh, Brian Whalen, co-CIO and generalist portfolio manager, joins us at TCW. They're out in L.A. That sounds cool, but it's really not, folks. they got to get into the office like 4 or 5 in the morning. It's a disaster. They say, oh, but we get out early. We can go play golf. I never buy that uh, argument. But, Brian, thanks so much for joining us here. I want to start by talking, you know, volatility in the Treasury market. I don't remember seeing 100 basis points moves in the two-year in the tre Treasury and the 10-year kind of on a daily basis, it seems. What are you guys doing out there? What's going on? Where's the liquidity? Yeah, incredible. Not only have to get up early, but it's raining today. So everybody's complaining <laughs> today, Paul. <laughs> um, unbelievable, right? It was just a few weeks ago. You know, we saw, I think we hit about 507 on the two-year, then you blink your eyes and you're trading at 380 on the two-year. Uh, we've kind of seemed to settle into a range right around here of about around 4%. So, um, you know, we came into this, uh, you know, this period, long duration, 
long a, a steepener, meaning we had a lot of our duration in the front end of the curve, expecting things to, to normalize, and things have moved in that direction, although we still got you know quite an inverted curve, about minus 50 basis points on twos, 10. So um, we kind of we like being long duration here, and in the meantime, we're going to trade this range. We're going to trade the volatility uh, and hopefully you know, add some alpha for our clients as we kind of move up and down 25, 50 basis points. So we looked at the 10-year a couple of months ago, almost as high as the two-year was in the, in the upper fours, and here we are back around 3.5%. Are we going to see a four-handle on the 10-year anytime soon? I don't think so. In fact, well, I doubt it. I'd say I actually have more conviction saying we won't see five again on the two-year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've seen the on the two-year. I think we've seen the red line. You know, with with regards to what the what the financial markets can handle. Uh, we got up toward about you know two percent on or excuse me five percent on twos and. You know, things started to break, uh, and, you know, we've got this kind of a little bit of a, an illusion of stability, you know, for the last couple of days, just because we haven't seen a, a regional bank go into receivership, you know, for about, what, 72 hours, plus or minus. Uh, weekend's coming up. But, you know, we're not buying it. What's that? <laughs> the weekend's coming up. That's when we find out which right. bank doesn't wait, didn't wait. make it till Monday. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's not just banks, too. I mean, like, you know, that, that's grabbed the headlines for the last couple of weeks, and that's primarily what's been, uh, you know, behind this, this rate rally and, and this rate volatility. But, you know, there's other shoes to drop. You know, we saw, we saw LDI in the U.K. back in the fall. Now we've had our little, you know, our regional situation, and we've actually had a, a GSIB, you know, get merged, you know, UBS and Credit Suisse. Uh, but, you know, just look at, look at REIT stocks. Look at REIT stocks. Look at REIT bonds, both in Europe. Uh, as well as in the U.S., under a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, so, like I said, we've seen the red line. There are going to be other things to, to you know, to go to go bang. Uh, it's just going to be a matter of time. It, you know, it doesn't all happen, you know, in consecutive days. Brian, do you watch um, the flows of money in terms of, like, out of bank deposits and into broker-dealer, into fixed income assets? Because it seems like yeah. um, there were a lot more uninsured deposits out there than I would have thought previously that's institutional money plus a lot of retail money um you know mom and pop are asking the question should i take my money out of the bank and instead put it into a you know short duration treasuries fund or buy an etf or something like that yeah i think look i think a lot of people not just people i think companies have let their guard down you know with regards to how much uninsured money they kept at at a lot of these smaller and regional banks i don't think we've seen the end of this flow um i think you know People are catching their breath. I think they now have the opportunity to move their money, but I don't think it's over. And, yeah, we see it directly. In fact, the way we see it, you know, in the fixed income market, we see it with regards to short-end, you know, bills, treasury bills, you know, one-month, two-month, three-month bills. They're trading incredibly rich. Why are they trading rich, meaning very expensive? Uh, Because money flowed out of deposits at banks. They went into money market funds, and those money market funds had to buy something. You know, and right now, there's all this volatility. Those fund managers are not – sure how long that money is going to stick around for so this is by the shortest instrument uh, and we're seeing that right now we have not seen the you know this this richness these high prices and short t-bills alleviate at all in the last few days what what do you make of these regional banks offering cds fdic insured uh up to a quarter million dollars around the five percent yield level is this just to attract some depositors that seems like a pretty decent return over the course of 12 months it's an excellent return. I mean, it's what they have to do. I mean, right now you you've got to you've got to hold on to as many of your deposits as you can. You know, if you're some of these small regional banks and you're trying to basically instill confidence because banking is a confidence game, uh, and, and so they're going to have to do, and sometimes maybe even you know lose a little bit money, but they're, but that's the most important thing to keep that liquidity. 
uh, and to be able to kind of live on, you know, through it's probably going to be, you know, pretty eventful few months here. Brian, I don't know if, if you look at WERP or how often you look at the World Instrument uh, Probability I do. Screen. I yeah. do. So, I'm just thinking you can, you can find the nerds at a party if you yell out WERP and <laughs> people look at you with interest. You, you know where the Bond geeks are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, well, listen, maybe I'm not as much of a nerd because I don't really get it. Is this really the market pricing in cuts? I mean, is that really what this means when I look at this yeah. screen? Um, or is it like hedging going on? Uh, yeah, what, good question. What it, because, you know, the, Powell has come out and said over and over again, guys, I'm not going to cut rates this year. And if he does, it would be terrifying, right? Because I feel like something huge yeah. would have to break. So what does WERP really mean? So, so for, 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 for my mom, who might be listening, WERP is – the market's projection of the Fed funds rate. So where is it going to go over the next 12 months? And what WERP is saying right now is that there's a coin flip that the Fed's going to hike next month. Uh, and then by the end of the year, it's saying the Fed's going to cut about three times, so about 75 basis points of cuts. The way I would encourage everyone to think about that is, you know, we, we, we think about it, we like to talk about it as a, you know, a single number. Think about it more as maybe, maybe a 50-50 um, kind of uh, probability of two scenarios. The first one meaning the Fed hikes and we get to about you know five and a quarter on the upper part of the band of the Fed funds rate, and it stays there for the end of the year, and that's where we end. There's a 50% shot of that. However, there's a 50% shot they got to cut 150 basis points, meaning that something even more nasty than we've seen breaks in the financial markets. Um, there's you know that's kind of systemic type of risk. And, you know, financial conditions tighten so much that the Fed has to get incredibly aggressive really soon to kind of alleviate that pressure on the, uh, on the economy and on the market. So it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very um, extreme two scenarios. That's the way I would encourage people to think about it. Hey, Brian, thanks so it's much. Good, it's, uh, good to, it's good to get a yep. little insight there. Because I know. people talk about it as if it's actually Mr. Market saying, <laughs> this is likely to happen, you yep. know, and it doesn't. It doesn't yeah. convince me. Yeah. All right. Brian Whalen, co-CIO and general's PM at TCW Fixed Income. Before that, he started his career at Donaldson, Lovkin, and DLJ. Dendret, and you kids can go out and look that up. <laughs> Fantastic firm until me and my friends at Credit Suisse came along and acquired them. And then most of the talent walked out like 15 <laughs> minutes after the closing. So that's how that works. But the Brian landed just fine at the Trust Company of the West running the gobs of cash there. So we appreciate getting a few minutes of his time. This is great. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Mandeep Singh, Senior Technology Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us here in the studio. And, and Poonam, let's begin with you. With We've been talking about Lululemon, but love to broaden it out a little bit more. What's your call here on the consumer on retail, are they just buying stretchy pants or are they buying other stuff too? I think shoppers are buying what they want to buy. So it's one of those things where if you have the right product, you're getting the shopper to come in. There's been mixed reviews on, you know, the consumer spending and where the consumer is flowing. But, Paul, I, I, you know, when I look at it, if you're traveling, uh, you're, you're spending money, right? You just have to find what you want. And Lululemon is a place where people find what they want. And that's why you continue to see strength there despite macro indicators that would say, you know, inflation is high, rates are going up, unemployment is ticking up a little, savings are dropping, but the consumer is spending because the consumer is spending where they want to spend. So we were talking about this earlier. I noticed that the retail world 
seems to have lost its middle. There's there's the you know budget value minded brands and the luxury brands. Am I misreading this? Is this just my biased perspective, or have we hollowed out what used to be the J.C. Penney's, Macy's, Lord and Taylor sort of middle end of the retail market? So there's clearly a bifurcation between the low and the high, and that exists. The middle was losing ground, so they're starting to evolve. So when you talk about these department stores, you know, they've been around forever, but the customer kind of went away from them because they were too big, too over-assorted. And what we're seeing happening with the middle is they're, they're starting to become more catering to clients that they want. So they're evolving. They're shrinking their store size. They're developing brands that will resonate more with shoppers. They're changing the experience in the stores. And, and that's where the middle is shifting right now. Hey, Mindy, let's switch from retail a little bit. Micron, semiconductor company, they had some pretty good numbers, but I think people like the guidance a little bit. Talk to us just real briefly about what you learned from Micron and what it means for the, the chip glut. business. Yeah, the, the glut. The glut. I don't know if their numbers were good because they had negative 31% gross margin. So how, when, do you, how do you do that? You do that when you have got a lot of inventory that you have to write off. And look, these businesses require a lot of CapEx because they're running their own fabs and they're running at a much lower utilization right now because the end market demand isn't there on the PC and smartphone side. That's when you see negative gross margins. The last time it happened was in 2008-09, and we wow. know that lasted about eight quarters. So everyone right now is thinking this is a four to five quarter decline, and next year it's gonna be you know back to 40, 50% growth. Now look, I, I think there are certain end markets in semis that are strong, autos, data centers, we know that. But in the case of Micron, over half of their revenue comes from PCs and smartphones, and which is why they had to write down a lot of the inventory. Who's buying PCs now? Does anybody buy PCs anymore? Well, yeah, yeah, they still. So there, there I mean, I, I guess for work, right? For the office. Laptops. Uh, yeah. But it's still a saturated market. So when right. you think about, you know, the demand drivers and how these end markets are growing, they're not growing north of, you know, uh, low single digit. And that's where a refresh cycle really matters. So what happened during the COVID phase is we probably pulled forward a lot of the refreshes. And right now we are going through that lull where... There is nobody who is actually interested in refreshing their PC, and we have to wait a couple of years. Same thing with smartphones. And uh, look, uh, Micron doesn't supply directly to customer. It's a B2B business. So the companies that buy from Micron, they probably had an overcapacity to begin with because we are coming from a shortage phase. We're talking about supply chain shortages for the last two years. And so Micron actually expanded their capacity over the last two years. So now that extra capacity is hurting them. So let me ask you the question before Matt does. When do we start to see sufficient semiconductor production to allow new cars to be produced at levels that will meet demand and perhaps get rid of some of these uh, dealer uh, surcharges? ADMs, right? Additional dealer markup. Barry and I don't care about the PCs. But I ordered my Challenger a couple months ago, and I'm still waiting, waiting for, for it. it. Right? I, of well, course, Micron I think I'll does. wait till the end of the year. Because autos is still, you know, 10 to 15 percent of their overall revenue, whereas PCs and smartphones are much bigger. So even though you may think it's because of, you know, uh, uh, bottlenecks and chip supply, but 
that's not how these companies make money. If what you're supplying to the autos is a small ASP chip, whereas when it comes to PCs and data centers, it's much bigger ASPs for these companies, average selling So prices. they're just not a priority to the manufacturers that's satisfying their bigger clients? Wow, that's See, amazing. I mean, when was the last time GM and Ford weren't like a major client? All right, Poonam, let's go back to you because, I mean, the inventory issue that we're talking about in semis, it's the similar type thing in your retail space. Is there that a glut of yoga pants? Inventory to sales <laughs> ratio. Has, has the industry kind of gotten its inventory situation in shape? I think they're working towards it. So it's definitely better than where it was mid last year and even through the holidays. But it's still a work in progress. There's still more inventory that needs to be cut, and they really need to realign their inventories with demand. Because if the consumer does slow in the back half, then inventories could once again pile up very quickly if they don't begin to put a model in where they can chase inventory rather than have too much. Poonam, I mean, uh, Mindy, just real quick, 30 seconds. Are we on the other side of this ups and downs with chips? Are we, gonna, are we now kind of on an upswing where we're going to – It'll be a good business again? Probably we are in that late inventory correction phase for PCs and smartphones. Okay. But we haven't seen a slowdown on the autos and data center side. No. So we can't even talk about a trough because there hasn't been any deceleration. So end market exposure really matters right now. All right. End market exposure really matters. All right. Good stuff. And that's Matt and Barry buying all these silly cars that they do. All right. So we got Poonam Goyal. Thank you so much for joining us. Poonam covers all Don't the retail motorcycles, stuff. motorcycles, by the way. Motorcycles, Because of Ducati has more chips in the Multistrada V4 than they've ever had. Now you've got a motorcycle that can do adaptive cruise control. It has blind spot detection. But the problem with that is I ordered one last year in 2022. I'm not going to get it until next year, 2024. You're just ordering things left and right. He is. I mean, left and what right. recession. Exactly. What recession? All right, Mandeep Singh covering all the tech stuff here uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. So nice round table there, bringing retail and tech together. Who else can do it but Bloomberg Intelligence? More coming up. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We focus on earnings. We focus on big macro issues like uh, what's going on in the banking system. But boy, at the end of the day, it seems like these markets continue to be driven by this Federal Reserve. Uh, we need to get a sense of kind of where we are. Hugh Hendry, he's a founding partner of Eclectica Asset Management. Uh, he founded that back in 2002. Hugh, thanks so much for joining us here. I, how is this Fed performing here? Is this Fed still behind the curve? Are they just nowhere near the curve or are they finally gotten back on board there? What's your call of this Fed here as we wait some more inflation data later this week? Oh, oh, heavens, I, I feared you were going to ask me that. I don't know if it's because it's raining. And I find myself in Los Angeles this morning. And, and it's, it's raining. raining. You go all the way to L.A. and it's raining. I know. And I don't want to. I don't. I am the rain. I'm full of disdain. <laughs> <laughs> the Fed's notions, their portions. Um, where is the gain? I, my, my, I think the best retort to your question, is it a retort? But um, is tell me when the Fed, tell me when we last gave them like five stars. Tell me when they, they actually. <laughs> It, when they actually they, they brought something to the table which actually empowered and, and made our lives better and i don't i wait one was it 80 well eight, 82 when yeah. when when finally rates peaked now let's let's look at that rates peaked to fed rates peaked to 20 percent yeah and that seems an extraordinary level but let's put a filter on that because 
debt, and I'm going to round these debt to GDP ratios, you know, the quantum of debt versus the income of the American economy. I'm going to, we're not going to do decimal points. I'm going to tell you that in the 70s, we had deleverage. We finally completed the deleverage from the travesty you know, of the bank crisis so many decades before in the 1930s, yeah? Which is to say debt was one times uh, the size of the American economy. And if you fast forward um, 40, 50 years from that point, of course, we re-leveraged. We, we became very bullish on ourselves. And I think, and I fear in the process, we created a lot of fictitious wealth in the asset markets. But debt is now four times national income. And so what I want to say, if you had 20 and you compare the 20% Fed funds to the debt of one times GDP, well, you know, 20 times one is 20. And then fast forward to today, and we're at five pretty much. And we've got four of four X of debt. So I want to say to you that today feels a lot like 1982, that we're kind of at 20% rates. And when you're at those levels, things break. And you don't need me to tell you things have been breaking. So here's the question I think a lot of people are wrestling with, because when you look at rates um, objectively today, when you look at them in absolute terms, they're historically low. So is it the level of rates or how rapidly they rose over the past 12 months? It, it, so the rates to use the vernacular of the financial markets, it's the carry, you know, it's the servicing of the debt. So yes, you're correct. I mean, comparing five to 20, then of course, in absolute terms, one is way below the other. But again, when the debt is four times greater, then you equalize. So don't fall into that trap. 5% rates are very potently uh, destructive to our economy today. Um, I think, so I, I want to, can, may I suggest to you um, that we almost have the worst of all worlds? And let me try and explain Boy. why, because um, the real economy, you know, for the real folk out there going to work and trying to make a dollar, um, they're under the heel of this very profound and sharp tightening um, of monetary conditions. And then we have asset prices and asset prices are really prone to inflation. And it's an inflation coming from kind of the the system of trade that we have with the rest of the world that you know as we know america america consumes and the rest of the world produces almost so one one is a deficit nation and one is a surplus nation now economics it was conceived that that could happen from time to time but actually it's become the norm i, I mean all of my adult life america has been the deficit nation and we've had we call them mercantilists but we've had you know, trade orientated economies like germany and these uh, oil producers and of course over in asia and they create surpluses and the great problem that the real folk have is that these surplus nations around the world they don't want to buy physical goods or services from the real folk, they want to buy, they want to buy financial assets from the Wall Street folk. And so again, we've got this kind of division where one part of the community, a very small part of the community, is wearing sunglasses because the future seems so bright. And the other part of the community has the the disdain of the rain, the deflationary rain. But how does that work out, Hugh? I mean, this all sounds very 
kind of sky is falling. Thomas Woods, we heard this after the great financial crisis. It reminds me of that, you know, rap video that was, uh, what was that? Um, it, it, it was Keynes versus Hayek, Hayek right? right? right. Um, and, but th- that, you know, terrible uh, reckoning never came to pass. Maybe we put it off for a, a decade and a half. But how does this all work out? Because that sounds like a really bad setup. No, well, okay, okay. Uh, propaganda, my friend. You've been swallowing the propaganda from Wall Street. Um, let's 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 unveil a few things, okay? Um, if you look at the per capita GDP expansion, what does that mean? That means the the average income from for the average Joe in this country, okay? And and you base it to one hundred, and you compare the plight of the average real person. Okay, since 2009, since the last great financial crisis. Okay, and as a reference point, let's take 1930. Okay, and so let's consider two communities of the real folk one starting in 1930 and going 15 years out, and one starting in 2009 and going. 15 years out, slightly less, yeah? The the folk back in the in the Great Depression, their income's gone from 100 to 180, okay? So there's our reference point, okay? Where Where is the, the corresponding expansion in income for the when we start that, that journey at 2009? You find that the average per capita U, uh, US GDP statistic has gone from 100 to just shy of 120. Actually, for the real folk, We've been living in a depression where the financial press are unwilling for some reason to call it that. And why is it a depression? Because over the last the last 14 years or so, the Federal Reserve and indeed financial markets on at least three occasions have sought to tighten monetary policy. Um, and that, that's pro- proven itself to be futile, right. damaging. Hmm. That's really interesting. You you raise some some fascinating points one of which is is looking at both wealth inequality and what's been taking place uh, in terms of the U.S. deficits. What you're really saying is that if the United States cut less taxes on corporations and the wealthy, the average working stiff would have more cash and we'd have less deficits. Am I am I hearing you correctly? Um. I would like to take it a, a step forward. I'd like to say that actually the U.S. has been, and this will kind of cause people to shirk, but uh, has been a, a benevolent hegemon that has actually been willing to run down going on in the modern financial world, which is that all of the surplus savings from all over the world are being channeled and funneled into the United States economy. Why is that funny? It's funny because the US economy has no need for those savings. Sure, there's a need for investment in the US economy, but that that need is more than met by domestic sources of savings, okay? So, and and in the orthodoxy of economics is the savings should be going to the other nations which you know, which need financing, which which have lots of investment demands. That's not happening. And so, again, the, what happens, these surplus capital flows, they flow right. into asset prices. And then they make they make it very uncomfortable for the real folk because your house is just too expensive. <laughs> like young professional kids can't live in major yep. cities anymore. It's, you a, know, it's that's a great the, point. I had yeah. a boss, uh, an ex-boss now, 
um, who said he couldn't believe the audacity of the new hires that felt they should be able to live near the office <laughs> to afford to live in the city where they work. All right, uh, Hugh, I hope we get to have you on for, for a lot longer next time for like a half hour instead of just 10 minutes because it's really fascinating stuff. All right, Hugh Henry, founding partner of Eclectica Asset Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.